you find your place again, I'd love to have you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Matthew, chapter 17. Study sheet in your bulletin, of course, is a helpful thing, I think, for me, certainly, as I know that you're keeping track of where we're at, but I encourage you to have that as well. If you were to ask uh, any person, whether a child or an adult, uh, what you need today, you would hear a whole variety of things. You know, what do you need? If you needed anything today, what do you need? Some would answer more money, uh, better health, uh, time off. Um, oh, my goodness sakes. Different people in my life, a different job, no job. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what you would say. What do you think you need? But one thing is for sure, uh, one thing that the Bible says we need, without which we are in a tremendous deficit, is a clearer view and vision of what God is like, a sense of his glory. I'd like you to think with me today about that, that term glory and the idea of the glory of God, because we're going to see that in today's text. We're going to journey uh, elsewhere, at least as we be, begin here in thinking about the glory of God, and you're going to hear me talk about people being glory deficient. And I'm hoping you'll ask yourself if that's true of you. It sounds like a disease. Well, it is. We talk about vitamin D deficient or other things. Glory deficient. A Christian can be glory deficient. That is, a person with a very small or stale view of God. And I think the text today helps us with that just a bit. You may be a glory-deficient Christian. Small view of God. Stale view of God. No sense of his glory. One writer that I often turn to on such themes is John Piper. Um, In this book, which is called A Peculiar Glory, He devotes the whole book to the display of God's glory in one area, and that is in the Christian scriptures as he defines them. And in looking at and introducing that topic, he mentions three other areas in which the glory of God is displayed for our good and edifying as believers. So the scriptures would be one, uh, the heavens, the creation, the universe, the stars, It's another place. The heavens, what's it say? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shouts, shouts to all who will hear of the work of his hand. So the heavens, creation. Another would be the person of Christ, the God man, God in the flesh, is another place where the glory of God is revealed. John, the gospel writer, speaks of that. Uh, Jesus, speaking of him, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God then in Christ. And then the fourth one of those would be the gospel. In the gospel, you see the glory of God. In fact, in greater way than some of the Old Testament expressions of glory that I'm going to comment on in a moment. 2 Corinthians 4 would be a a key text on that. The Apostle Paul writes uh, about uh, describing the gospel. He calls the gospel the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
The gospel of glory. And of course, in the preceding chapter, he talks about Old Testament expressions of glory and how those expressions of glory that we might want to be a part of, they're exceeded in the person of Christ in his finished work on the cross in his resurrection from the dead. So four then displays of the God of God's glory Uh, in creation, all that he's made in Jesus, son of God, our savior. In the gospel, the telling of the story of what Jesus came to do and to be. And in the Christian scriptures, the glory of God displayed. Are you, are you a glory deficient person, Christian today? A small view of God or a stale view of God. Then certainly one of the things that you need and I need is a, is a growing sense of the glory of God. Interesting, uh, the Old Testament term for glory has behind it a kind of a root idea of weightiness. Um, the glory of God is no, uh, is no light matter. The weightiness of the display of the attributes and the beauty of God. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today in Matthew 17. So excited about the text. Love what's here. I want to pray for us and uh, we'll jump right in here. So join me, please. Father, indeed, you know, as we come today as worshipers, if, if we are glory deficient, if, if not even knowing it, we have too small a view of God or a stale view of God, a God that as we think about, we might nod off. And our Father, I pray that you would arrest us today with a sense of the display of the glory of God in the text in front of us and of others in the, in the scriptures that we would be driven to be captured by you and motivated by, by what you are like in our battle against sin, in our pursuit of Christ on a daily basis, and how we interact with other people that we know and love, how we carry out our jobs, everything about us affected by how we view you. So, Father, we trust you today to work through your word by the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen. On your study sheet, of course, a few reminders of places we've been in our study in Matthew and a couple comments on today's text. I I have divided my thoughts on Matthew 17 into two parts, uh, verses 1 through 13, and uh, then verses 14 to the end of the chapter. I'll probably spend more of my time on the first half. Uh, If you look at your study sheet, my journey to the text is not quite complete Because I want to remember with you some displays of God's glory from the Old Testament, of which then today's text is a continuation. So I'm just going to think with you out loud about these. I'm not going to ask you to turn to all of them. But in your later study, here are some specific texts you might read for your own encouragement. But but several displays of the glory of God in the Old Testament stand out as particularly pivotal in the progress of Revelation. And you see in them uh, a display of what God is like and how in every case the people who view God, who see his glory, are profoundly affected by it. All right? So I'm thinking here with you, Exodus 20, I give you the verses 18 to 21. That text draws us to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. God's people have come out of slavery in Egypt, made their way across the Red Sea, and the, the, the slaughter of Pharaoh's army in pursuit of them. 
and uh, the introduction to the cloud uh, and the pillar of fire. And here they come to Mount Sinai. Here's the moment. God's going to give the law. And Moses is going to go up, and it's an amazing moment. God gives instructions. He says, don't come near the mountain. Anybody who comes near your dog comes close. It's going to die. All right? So it's a powerful moment. It's attended by, by lightning and clouds and darkness on top of the mountain. And Moses walks right up there. And the people are properly terrified, terrified, captured by this display of the glory of God. If they thought Moses was just going up there to take a hike, they were, they were going to be quickly mistaken. Uh, a display of the glory of God, even in those, in those ways. Chapters 33 and 34, continuing the story of the law and the tabernacle. There's a moment, you recall, when Moses comes down from the mountain, shatters the tablets of stone because the law itself has been broken. So he symbolically smashes the pillar or the, the, the stone plates and says, these have now been broken before his eyes. And then there's another moment. And God says to the, you think about this. God says, you guys are going to go up to the promised land, but I will not come among you. Think about that. I won't be among you because you are stiff necked people. And if I were to come be among you, uh, my glory would just, it would slaughter y'all. It wouldn't happen. And I'm not coming. And Moses intercedes. Moses pleads. He says, Oh God, if you do not go among us, I'm not going. <laughs> the party's over. I'm not coming. And then he, he asked God of something that you would do well to ask of him also. He says in Exodus 34, Oh God, show me your glory. He wasn't just asking for a light show. Because as you see the text unfold, uh, God announces, as part of that moment, announces who, who he is and what he is like. The Lord, the Lord God, uh, slow to anger, long-suffering. He explains what he's like. That's the, the text, Exodus 34, of which some songs refer, where Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock. Sometimes you think about that just as protection. Well, it was more than that. He was hidden in the cleft of the rock as God's glory passed by because God knew that if Moses in his human body saw too much of the glory of God, it would kill him. It would just kill these bodies are not made for it. There's Exodus 34. Then, then again, the, the completion of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, that's Exodus 40, where this tent, where they're going to meet God, it's just a tent. It's a tent where they're going to meet with the Lord. And at its inauguration, its dedication, the glory of the Lord descends in visible form. So much so that the people are terrified. The priests can't even go inside. There's a visible expression of the glory of God. Displayed. The law, the tabernacle. Now, moving on. You see it again in Second Chronicles 7, 1 to 3. There are other texts that, that speak of the same event. I didn't give all of those. That's just one. Solomon's temple. Not just a tent in the wilderness. No, baby, this is full of gold and cool stuff. I mean, it's big. And it's time, and it's, it's going to be glorious to the human eye, but it's also going to be filled with the glory of God. And again, a similar scene, the glory of God descending, people seeing it, being amazed, terrified, scared, so, so amazing that the priests couldn't, could hardly go inside to do their job. But the glory of God, Isaiah chapter 6, scene we're well familiar with, I think. Isaiah says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Imagine. He was lofty and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. And then there were these, these angelic beings, seraphim, 
And they were, they were crying out what they cry out. <laughs> holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. And of course, it so captures Isaiah that he hardly knows what he's volunteering before, but his hand is in the air. I'll do anything. I'll do anything you ask me to do. Anything. Say the word. The key to his obedience, the key to his willing heart is he, he saw God clearly. If you ever wonder what slows you down sometimes, it could be that you are a glory deficient Christian. You have a small view or a stale view of a glorious God. Isaiah 6, Isaiah got over that in a hurry. Now, there are many others like that in the Old Testament. And so we come now to Matthew 17. There's another moment in which the glory of God interjects itself into human life in just an amazing way. And I want to read that part of the text as you see, as you see on your uh, study sheet, I'm going to begin reading at uh, Matthew 16, verse 24, because I see that last paragraph as a lead into today's text. And I will read then through chapter 17, verse 13. Okay, as together we look at the word of God. We read this, then Matthew told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what what could a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the, what is it? In the glory of his father. Then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured or metamorphosed, metamorphosized. Is the, is the idea there. Changed. He was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you. One for Moses. One for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Get up, get up. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only and As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He said, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. If you look at your study sheet, you'll see that in my division of the text and the titles I've given, this first part just captures this element of glory. I use the title, I can only imagine, to draw your minds to the song by that title. 
movie that some of you may have seen, Eyewitnesses of Glory. And then the second section, Jesus, glory incarnate, returns to serve a hurting world, comes down off the mountain from the from a moment of glory right back to a world of hurting people. And so the journey goes for those who were with him as well. Now, if you look with me, then uh, I see a connection between the end of chapter 16, as I read, and the beginning of chapter 17. There was some discussion, of course, as there's discussion of every verse in the Bible by people who write about such things, uh, wondering if, if Jesus was referring to the transfiguration there at the end of chapter 16 or to another event. I take it uh, to his expression there. Many of those not will not taste death until I take it as a lead in to chapter 17, if only because of the way that Matthew arranges the story. It seems very clear that here in this display of kingdom glory, that that's what's going on. So I'll leave that discussion for the Academy at that point. But I, I think that's what that's about on your study sheet. I note here in about the scene in the book of Matthew, important things happen on mountains. It's kind of interesting if you like to study sub-themes in Scripture. Uh, This is a theme in the Old Testament. There are a few mountains there as well. Mount Sinai and on you go. There are a number of mountains uh, mentioned. And so in the telling of the gospel story by Matthew. uh, Jesus is taken by Satan, part of the temptation, up on a high mountain. Um, Mount of Beatitudes. And so on. And now, of course, we in the Northwest know, because of geography, that when they, the Bible talks about these mountains, it's like the people from back east when they talk about mountains. These are small rises in the horizon, small hills. We say quickly, if there's not a glacier, it's not a mountain. Well, okay, this is, that's Northwest mountain snobbery, which I proudly claim. Uh, but nonetheless, important things happen on mountains. And so here they go. They, there's something, I think, symbolic. Jesus chooses Peter, James, and John, his inner three of the 12, and takes them with him for it. Maybe they think they're just taking a hike, and their, their imagination is quickly captured. Now, um, I, 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 I wonder, because I wonder these sorts of things. Um, my brain is a color commentary brain. I don't know how yours is. You may be just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. I don't know. I, I work color commentary which is not inspired by God. Okay. But I think this way when I read the Bible, I'm busy thinking, I wonder what this was like. So did it happen all at once? Like you're walking along and then suddenly bam, or was there like a, a, a like, you know, twilight zone? Was, was there some sense? Something's changing. I mean, I don't know. It just describes this moment. I just, I just try to put myself in the, sh- the sandals of Peter, James and John and so here you go, and then, and then there's a moment when they realize, and maybe one pokes the other and says, look, well, I don't know, or they all catch it at once. I don't know. But here's Jesus transfigured before them, his face shining like the sun and his clothes white as light. Something's going on here. And then two other people, where'd they come from? And the text says Moses and Elijah. I'd like to know, again, details the text does not say. Jay's color commentary wonders. How did they know they were Moses and Elijah? Were they wearing name tags? Was it, you know, uh, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. It's two guys in sandals and robes. But maybe they only knew this later. Maybe Jesus told them this on the way down the mountain. I don't know. But it's Moses and Elijah. Some would suggest, and probably accurately, 
representing the law and the prophets. Uh, two key figures in the Old Testament, two, two folks through whom God did amazing things. Uh, the plagues in Egypt done hand of God through Moses, other miracles, really, uh, again, stepping into other things. But you should think about these things. Two miracle seasons in the Old Testament. Uh, those would be them. <laughs> Moses and Elijah, uh, the plagues, and then the life of Elijah. Miracles didn't happen all the time uh, then as now. But. Uh, probably representing the law and the prophets, which Jesus would say in other, in another place, they spoke of me, right? Jesus would say they, Moses wrote of me. I think Luke 24, he wrote of me. And so here they are, um, a whole theology of death again, sub steady. But, but for those of you who have grieved the loss of loved ones who've died in faith, Moses and Elijah had been long dead. How are they? Come on. Quite well, thank you. Quite well. And showing up later to interact with Messiah Jesus. So if you ever wonder, you know, oh boy, I mean, are they missing me? No, probably not. They're with the Lord and they're doing great. Uh, I don't mean to diminish any of that. I'm just, I just, I just think it's, you know, call it out. There it is. Moses, Moses and Elijah. And here they are. And they're talking with him. Now, if you study this same account in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all of them tell the story. You find different things. For example, Luke's gospel. I think it is. I think I have it. Yep. Yeah, Luke nine thirty one. a little further down the page. I won't skip the part. I just moved over, but I think it's in Luke nine thirty one where it says that Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about his, his departure that he was just about to accomplish. We don't know that from other texts. Only Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah were talking with him, with Jesus about what was going to happen in Jerusalem when he was to die on the cross and rise from the dead. And again, another thing in Jay's brain, looking for a color commentary, how long was this event? A couple, I mean, a couple minutes. Was it longer? I don't know, but it was long enough to have a conversation about Jesus coming death and resurrection. It was long enough to talk about that. Was Jesus getting information? Were they just chatting about it? What was this? A lot of information were not given. Was this Moses and Elijah just, just saying, go get him. It's the, this is the stuff of the Bible. By the way, Moses and Elijah, did I say this? I forget this hour. The two um, ways that Jewish people often spoke about the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Maybe I didn't say that, but that would be uh, certainly the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament points its way toward Christ. Now, your study sheet, the one little point that I I moved over, but I'm not going to skip. The glory, the glory with which Jesus was clothed at this moment. Please get this. Please get this. This is not a foreign glory. That is a glory that belongs to another. It is his It is his glory. It is his glory that he had before the foundation of the world. The glory that was veiled in the incarnation, your understanding of Christology, the doctrine of Christ. No, that glory was veiled as Jesus took on human form, born as a baby, Bethlehem. That glory was veiled, but it was his. And then one day uh, glorified again. And a glory that one day we will not only share with him, but see 
in, in its fullness. And I just referenced some other texts here. I would, if you're unfamiliar with these, you really should go here. Look, look in your own study at these other texts, especially John 17. That is especially interesting because that is Jesus' high priestly prayer right before he goes to the cross. It's Jesus spending intimate time with his father. And among the things he comments on, verse 5, where he, he, he looks forward to the glory, he says to his father, the glory that I had with you before the world was. There's that part of the glory. Then you go to verse 24, and Jesus prays for you, by the way. He says, Father, I long, I'm asking that all those who you've given to me may be with me someday to see my glory. So if you're sitting here kind of going, man, I wish I was on that mountain. I'm saying, don't worry, don't worry. You will someday, but it'll be better than that. Because these guys were in human bodies and could only take so much. And someday, when you, as a child of God, are in his presence, you'll see a display of the glory of God that'll, that'll cause you to set aside all the other list of, oh, God, I have questions for you. I think they'll all be incinerated in a blaze of glory. I think 30 seconds later, you're going to, anything you want to say to me? Any questions you want to ask? None whatsoever. I think they'll, I, I'm not kidding. I suspect that, that, that those things that, that attend to this life will be so forgotten in a display of the glory of God like you can't imagine. If the heavens display his glory and it takes your breath away, how much more do you think the creator will take your breath away? Well, you think about these things. The glory is his. The glory is his. You would one day will see it. If you know Christ, one day you'll see it because you'll see him as he is. First John 3 says that you'll see him as he is. You'll share that glory. Absolutely Stunning. Now, Peter, people talk about Peter, verse 4. Peter, of course, our favorite guy, he uh, says a variety of things. Sometimes we beat up on Peter, maybe a little too much. And here, certainly, you know, he says this cool thing about maybe we should build some tents. He's not talking Boy Scouts here. These aren't little pup tents. Uh, the, the idea behind the term that's used and so on is more, most likely pointing to booths, as in the Feast of Booths. If you're familiar with Old Testament booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, when God's people made little uh, tabernacles and lived in it for a period of time to remember God's care for them in the wilderness wandering. Uh, some people look just at Peter because Mark and Luke note very clearly he, he, along with the other guys, were terrified. They didn't know what to say. And one of the other guy, uh, commentators, uh, Matt, I think it's Mark, says he didn't know what he was saying. How about that? Would you like to be remembered that way, you know, forever? Um, here he is chatting. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That's great. What's your name on it? Well, that was Peter. It was. But at the same time, I just have to go to bat for him in this one sense. And maybe he, maybe he spoke better than we represent. Because in Zechariah 14, it's a text that looks ahead to the kingdom, messianic kingdom, the coming kingdom of God's glory. And it talks about in the coming kingdom, God's people living in booths and remembering the work of God. There's a nod to the Feast of Tabernacles in Zechariah 14. And and the disciples who were thinking the kingdom was here now, right? We've seen that. Kingdoms here now didn't see the cross. Was, was Peter, okay, stuttering and stammering around? Of course, I'll give you that. But was he thinking Zechariah 14? Was he? Is it now? Do we build the tabernacles now? It says it in the Old Testament. Should we get busy with that? I don't know if what was on his mind. Well, and at, at that moment, verse 5, he was still speaking when? 
drowned out by God. Try that. That's pretty cool. He's, he's chatting about tabernacles and tents and God speaks. A bright cloud overshadows them and a voice from the cloud loud. Is it a loud voice? Is it a whisper? Do you know? I, I probably not. My picture is, is well loud enough because it says they fell on their faces. So I'm thinking this would have been, uh, you know, have some volume to it. A voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Where's the emphasis? I don't know. My suspicion is it would be on the him. Um, Old Testament, Moses, Elijah. Yeah, pretty big guns here in the house. And here is Christ. Here is Christ. Uh, in these last days, again, Hebrews 11, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. I, I suspect this is the father shining the spotlight on the son and saying, listen to him. Listen to him. And it says they were terrified. Do you think so? Fell on their faces, scared out of their wits in the right place. They were on their face. That's where they should have been. A display of the glory of God that captured them. They were glory deficient no more. Jesus came, touched them, says, rise, have no fear. Again, we comment over and over again through the scriptures how God touches his fearful people and says, fear not. And he does it again. He does it again. They lift up their eyes, Jesus only. Verse 9 makes sense to me. Jesus saying, hey, you know what? If you'd wait till after I rise from the dead, this will make a lot more sense to you. Because right now you're thinking the kingdom and we're going to take over the place. Not so much. Just hold on to this for a while. Wait, wait, wait. It'll make sense in a bit. Well, I think that's good advice. Then, of course, they talk about uh, John the Baptist. I'm not going to say a whole lot there. Uh, it's interesting, of course. Why did the scribe say Elijah must come? And we just saw the guy. He, we, you know, a couple hours ago. <laughs> They're walking back, back from the mountain. Elijah did come. And he says, nah, that's a veiled allusion to John the Baptist. Uh, so there you go. I want to go to that next section. I'm going to read this, just a couple of comments, really, because I'm, I'm walking with you from that moment of glory. I told you I'd spend longer on that part indeed. But this, this coming down from glory back to a hurting world, Jesus, glory incarnate, comes right back to serve a hurting world and head to the cross. So we read then, verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless, that's one of three references to faith, faithless, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, second reference, for truly I say to you, if you have faith, there's a third reference to faith, faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed, I imagine. 
when he came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, a temple tax, by the way, a Jewish tax, not a Roman tax, went up to Peter and says, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? When he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, I, I think to, to see this larger section properly, you need to think about what we just spent time on. Uh, Peter's with James and John, Jesus coming back down. They come to the other disciples, the other nine. What have the other nine been doing absent the others, uh, Jesus and the other three? Well, they've been trying to see, get this kid squared away, and they can't. And I don't know, you've, you've been a part of something, I know you have, where, where you had an amazing experience, and then you come back home and somebody has to clean the cat litter box. And it's kind of like, you know, we've been on a cruise for a week. Servants did this. And it's a hard re-entry. You know what I'm saying? It's a hard re-entry. And I wonder here for these guys. Peter, James, and John, you've been on the mountain with Jesus. And then there's the other nine. They've been, they've been staying at it. They're still doing the normal everyday stuff. They have no idea what Peter, James, and John have, have seen. I can just imagine those three going, guys, guys, guys. I mean, how does this work? You, you wouldn't believe. I mean, oh, you should have seen. You should have been there. But we're busy, right? We're working here. And they've got a problem. There's a hurting person, hurting dad, and a son. And they're struggling to figure this out. Now, this text is often preached with the idea that you need to have more faith, right? Better faith. Something wrong with your your faith, little faith, faithless. Jesus, of course, has no problem. Uh, a, a parallel text, I think it's Mark, says uh, at one point, this kind of prayer, uh, this kind of, of demon only comes out with by prayer. So in other texts, parallel texts, there's an emphasis there on prayer, which I think is telling uh, in what I'll say in just a moment here. I think, though, and I'm just going to just go straight to what I think is the main point here. You can mull this over. I don't believe that Jesus, in speaking about faithless and little faith and so on, I don't think he's denigrating the smallness of their faith so much as the poverty of their faith. And I take that from D.A. Carson. I give you a quote from his fine commentary on Matthew. Probably does not refer so much to the littleness of the faith as to its poverty. I believe that because if you look at the third reference to faith, it's faith like a mustard seed. How big is that? Yeah, pretty small. So if Jesus had meant you need bigger faith, he really used a bad analogy here. He should have said in the third case, if you have faith like Mount Everest or like a large tree or a big boulder, then you could get stuff done. But he didn't. He still speaks about someone with a tiny bit of faith. Doesn't he kind of like you and me? And I think the point is more about the object of faith. That is Christ. And I can just imagine, again, the context helps me here to think about this. Peter, James, and John, when the other nine are saying, we're having a hard time getting this done. Can you imagine the other three thinking, guys, if you only saw what we saw, oh, buddy, you know, <laughs> your faith would be made new. 
Peter, James, and John, I suspect, brimming with some sense of, of, of the divine. And here's the other nine going, we just, anyway, I, I, I think that's part of the context is the preceding paragraph. I think sometimes we read the gospels with um, just forgetting the way it's laid out on purpose by the writer. Now, verse 22, that miracle is followed by Jesus second and very direct foretelling of his death and resurrection to their consternation. These kingdom anticipating disciples, Jesus says, you know what? We're going to go up to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. That flies in the face of their anticipation of Messiah. No, you're supposed to conquer the place. You're supposed to take over. Kingdom's coming now, right? Jesus says, no. You remember, they just had this conversation back in chapter 16. If you remember, just a couple weeks ago, verse 21. That was the first very clear telling. Peter wasn't having it back then. He says it again. Their heart is right. I know it on your study sheet. Their timing is off. No, there's a cross. The kingdom plan includes a cross and an empty tomb the little story about the fish is rather fascinating it's only here in the in all the gospels and i believe sometimes this is preached um with a view to well i think missing the point that is uh let's talk about taxes should you pay your taxes or not don't answer that out loud Uh, yes is the answer of course of course you should um is this about uh, some other element about why? Is it about government? It, I think all of those miss the point entirely. I think those are second, 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 uh, or worse points. I think the main point is the identity of Jesus, which he gets at in verses 25 and 26. I think Jesus identifies the main point. Uh, what do you think, Simon? I mean, think about this. It's a temple tax. It's to support the place of worship. Who's Jesus? Uh, the new and great high priest. The temple, he's here. We're paying taxes for what now? When the real deal is right here? I think Jesus was pointing out the irony, the incongruity of this moment. Um, Jesus, God in the flesh, I'm about to die on the cross and pay for your sin. You want a couple bucks for pews? Not a problem. All right. I, I think it's more about the identity of Christ. I hope I'm not missing the point. But I think even in that, those two little sentences, you get the the, the whole thrust of the point. Interesting, of course, that Jesus could say, uh, here's how you're going to get the money. We don't apparently have a whole lot in our bag. Go fishing. It's the only reference, I think, in the New Testament to maybe even the whole Bible, to fishing with a hook. Everywhere else, it's nets. Oh, you fishermen, take note. It's here in the Bible, fishing with a hook. It's biblical. Well, okay, uh, that's a stretch. Don't say it that way. Uh, not to give offense, throw a hook, get the first fish. Who would know? But God in the flesh, you're going to pull that fish up. It's going to have a shekel in its mouth. That's enough for Peter and for Jesus. There's no way anybody else would know that. Now, I think the whole text hinges on the first half. The display of the glory of God with which the disciples are armed to walk into a hurting world and do business. And I think that same pattern is a biblical pattern. It's what God wants for you to be captured by his glory. And with that as your main, your main armor for the day, head into a hurting world and love and care and heal and serve. I think, I think that's the pattern for the children of God. And as I said at the beginning, I fear that often we are glory deprived followers of Jesus. We've got our heads down. We're walking along, looking at all the everyday mundane stuff, and those things capture us. Uh, They must be done. I know. 
somebody has to make peanut butter sandwiches. I'm talking about what captures your heart, what captures your imagination, that allows the mundane to be more than mundane, to become supernatural because it's done in the service of a glorious God. I, I think that's what God calls every one of us to do. Uh, another one of John Piper's books that talks about glory is this one, uh, God's Passion for His Glory. It's a commentary on Jonathan Edwards, another great theologian of yesteryear. His famous sermon, The End for Which God Created the World. The answer of that, of course, is for the display of His glory. That's the end for which God made the world. That's how Jonathan Edwards answered it, uh, the question, and that's how John Piper exegetes that sermon as well. On your study sheet, I have a couple items of response. God's glory, you might say, boy, if I could only have been on that mountain of transfiguration, then I'd really get it. No, actually, you're in a much better position because you have in your hands the, the complete word of God, the word of the living God, where you meet Christ, who is the full expression of God's glory. You see the gospel, the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You have that full revelation. And listen, if you, if you sense in your heart you are glory deficient today, and you have a small view of God or a stale view of God, listen, you get alone with the word of God and the spirit of God and, and turn off all your electronic stuff. Shut the door a little bit and spend time with God in this book and ask him like Moses did of old. Oh God, show me your glory. Let that capture your heart. Then walk into a hurting world. I think that's God's plan for your life. Want to pray for us? And then I'll ask you for just a couple more minutes of your time before you head out the door. So uh, stand with me as we pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word today and for this wonderful telling of a display of the glory of God. Oh, sure, we may be jealous, of course, of Peter, James, and John. And yet you've given us the whole canon of Scripture and told us of yourself and told us of your work in the gospel of Jesus. How we thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, a display of your glory like no other. Father, capture us with this and then send us, like Isaiah, into a hurting world there to display your glory. Thank you, Father, for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.